0: Welcome to the Compounders Podcast. On this show, we explore the topic of compounding from various angles, including through interviews with public and private company executives, investors who focus on compounders, and newer investment firms that are building a business they hope will become more valuable over time. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of SNN or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities. The host and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. My guest on the show today is Joseph Shapochnik, the portfolio manager of the TCW New America's Premier Equities Fund. Joseph began managing the fund in 2015 and since then has assembled a concentrated portfolio of mostly U.S. mid to large cap stocks. Morningstar currently has a four-star rating on the fund, which consists of a collection of high-quality recurring revenue businesses. In this conversation, we covered why predictability of cash flows is so important to Joseph, the rationale for having a heavy weighting in Constellation software, what he has learned about assessing management through his relationship with successful CEOs, why all recurring revenue businesses are not created equally, and why a company like Meta doesn't make the cut to be in his portfolio. And without any further ado, here's my conversation with TCW's Joseph Shaposhnik. One concept that you and I have discussed at length is how high a value you place on predictability of cash flows. You even use the word certainty in your presentations. Can you talk about the experiences that have led you to put so much emphasis on that?
1: You know, we're all a product of our... Life experience, and I think my life experience began uh, with my parents, and they immigrated to the United States from the former Soviet Union. And life back there was uh, incredibly unpredictable, and you know, even their transition to the United States, they came here without anything. Uh, not only did they come here with nothing, the luggage that they had on their trip to the United States. Uh, went missing so they came here with kind of less than nothing and i think that uh starting off as a first generation uh american uh we sought stability and predictability i think that was probably always in the in the back of my mind at least starting out um but uh you know my professional experience began at fidelity and at fidelity i was given responsibility for uh, the semiconductor industry, uh, right out of college, and as you may know, predicting semiconductor businesses uh, is is certainly a challenging endeavor. They tend to have, uh, or at least back then in two thousand and five, very few customers, uh, very cyclical, uh, sometimes generating positive cash flow and earnings, sometimes not. And uh, you know, I'll never forget an experience where. We had a CFO of a public company in the semiconductor industry that I that I covered back then come in talk about how great business was and uh, you know how uh, the company's plans were were progressing very well and then three or four days later the company reported earnings and the stock was down fifty percent fifty percent in the course of a couple of days and management had just talked about how great everything was going but. Uh, in that in that, uh, business, they had three customers and one of their customers was walking away, um, uh, in a year or so. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was one of those experiences covering the semiconductor industry, going through that blast furnace of, of watching those businesses go through their, their ups and downs. It, it shapes you. Um, uh, and then when I joined, uh, TCWI responsibility, uh, research responsibility for the industrial and chemical industry, and that was another very, very cyclical sector. Uh, and so, uh, through those experiences, I had to develop a framework uh, for investing, and I settled on a fl- on a framework that relied a lot on being able to predict uh, the cash flow and the uh, progression of businesses. Because I believe that uh, it, it, number one, increased the odds that we could appropriately value these businesses. But number, number two, I think as importantly, it reduced the probability that we would make catastrophic mistakes, which could, could certainly hurt the returns of, uh, uh, of the portfolio. I think lastly, I was very much shaped by uh, Warren Buffett's 1994 shareholder letter, where he lays out a four point criteria for uh evaluating businesses and in three of the four points he he begins uh the bullets by by saying the certainty with which one can predict the uh future dur- durability of the business or the future economics of this business the certainty with which one can etc three times out of four and the last point was Uh, paying a fair price for a business. So even Buffett, when he describes what he looks for in businesses, talks about certainty over and over and over again. I think that's one of the uh, less well understood aspects of his strategy. Interesting. I love that story about semiconductors because we,
0: we often ask the question is like, what's a stock that's a mentor for you? That those that semiconductor stock that was down 50% of the day is like a, a really good mentor of, of, of things you want to avoid. So g- given all that focus, you know, you unsurprisingly look for companies with recurring revenue um, business models. But one thing I've noticed in your presentation is you use the phrase, not all recurring revenue businesses are built the same. Maybe you could highlight some of the characteristics you do seek and then contrast those with some like biz- recurring ish business models that aren't as attractive to you.
1: Well, I think we look for recurring revenue businesses because our vision for the portfolio is that we're building a portfolio of businesses that can uh, grow at at a predictable and consistent rate. Uh, generate significant amounts of operating cash flow and have management in place that's both skilled at running the business well and reinvesting the cash flow into value enhancing acquisitions or high return projects. And so that flywheel uh, serves to continue to compound free cash flow per share at a consistent rate. And the combination of the 23 businesses that we own, we view it as a mountain uh, of free cash flow that kind of grows and grows and grows relatively consistently through good times and bad and puts upward pressure on the equity values of the businesses that we own and therefore the equity value of, of the portfolios that we manage. That's our vision for how we manage money and how we put together a portfolio. Now, you talk a little bit about The fact that not all recurring revenue businesses are created equal, and I certainly feel very strongly about that. So we divide the world with regard to recurring revenue businesses into two categories, the first one being transactional recurring and the second category being subscription recurring revenue businesses. We we certainly prefer the latter, the subscription, but let me spend a minute talking about uh, the differences between the two of them. Both of them can be good. The second one is, is usually superior. You know, in a transaction recurring revenue business, the example that I'd use is the credit bureaus. Uh, You know, the three credit bureaus in the United States uh, are critical toll booths for most economic activity. So uh, if you're seeking to get a mortgage, the process will require that you ping two out of the three credit bureaus and receive a score back from those bureaus. And the bureaus rely on uh, economic activity and transactions to to generate revenue, free cash flow, and EBITDA. And that tends to be less attractive than subscription recurring, because subscription recurring like a fact set where you're paying fact set on a monthly basis of a substantial amount of money. Um, And that business is a pretty pretty protected business because of its nature. Uh, The predictability of the subscription uh, revenue is far better than the predictability you might see from a transaction recurring revenue business. And so it just makes it easier to value. It makes it easier to predict. And more than anything, it makes it easier for the management teams of these businesses to manage their businesses more efficiently uh, and in a way to where they can optimize their spend, they can optimize their CapEx and they can do so in a way to where their investments are more likely to generate higher returns because they have better visibility into the future of their business than if they were in a transactional business where they aren't quite sure when the revenue will come in, they they aren't quite sure how they should budget their costs, and because of that, uh, unsurety uh, or unpredictability, or unpredictability, it makes it harder to manage those businesses, and it makes it somewhat more likely that the management teams will make decisions that don't quite pay off uh, as well, or or as well as they might expect. So I love that nuance
0: between and that the, the distinction between transactional and more subscription-related uh, um, recurring revenue businesses. But if you're requiring companies to have a fair level of of predictability, you're most certainly limiting the number of companies you can own. How have you populated and assessed the size of the universe of companies you'd be willing to own? Because it seems like you've got a subset of a subset of businesses that you can actually invest in, and that seems to be somewhat limiting. How have you settled on that?
1: You make a great point. Uh, Very few businesses uh, can meet the criteria of, uh predictability, durability, uh criticality with regard to the product or service, uh management team that's skilled at running the business and reinvesting cash flow uh, and trading at a reasonable price relative to our expectation for the future. So we're always on the lookout for those businesses. Uh some you find them in many different places. So we have to spend a lot of time looking Surprisingly, we found them over the years looking at new issues. So we've come across a couple of new issues over the years that have been phenomenal businesses that came out in 2016 or 17 or 18 when uh, IPOs were being somewhat reasonably valued. And so we've come across a couple of great ideas um, from the new issue market. In some cases, we've had to go outside the United States to, to find these businesses. Uh, Canada apparently uh, has been a, a, a favorite country of ours. We've gone to Europe as well to find these businesses, but you're right, it's, uh, it's a somewhat narrow universe of businesses that fit this criteria and that trade reasonably. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons we've uh, managed a portfolio that's that's relatively concentrated today. We own about 23 businesses. Uh, because there aren't that many uh, extraordinary businesses that fit uh, a very tight and narrow criteria. Uh, and so you always have to be creative. you always have to be looking in areas that maybe not everybody is looking and uh, you know also stay somewhat open-minded because just because we've you know we've talked about transactional and subscription recurring uh, revenue models, there can be other models, there can be other ways, Uh, Recurring revenue can manifest itself. So we're always trying to keep an open mind uh, and keep our eyes open and always looking uh, for new ideas as well. I think the other uh, important point is most recently, in in, in recent times, we've managed the business uh, and the portfolio with relatively limited amounts of turnover. So we don't always feel the need to have to add a new idea to the portfolio I think that over the last six months, our turnover has been about 5 or 6%. So our goal is really to stick with these great businesses for long periods of time. As long as they continue to be great and continue to uh, advance their positions, grow their free cash flow, um, our our goal is to stay with them for long periods of time. Because we think that uh, true investment success comes from staying in the market and staying with these great businesses for long periods of time. It doesn't come from uh, buying things that are that are inexpensive and selling them when they're rich. We think it comes from the long term compounding uh, of those businesses. And so we don't always feel the need to have to find something new.
0: And you mentioned concentration in that response and concentration is something that you and I both believe uh, strongly in. So maybe discuss where you settled in terms of the right number of stocks for your own risk tolerance and temperament. You know, is 23, you know, is it, is, is that been a consistent number? Has it come down or up? Like where, how did you get to kind of like a 20 something number as being right for, for your, for everything that works for your style?
1: I, I think that's a, that's a happy medium to achieve some level of diversification uh, because I think uh Clients expect a level of consistency when they invest with us. And so our goal is to deliver uh consistency and also a, a positive outcome relative to the benchmark uh, for clients. So we we've we've settled on this being a, a a good number of businesses that we think can continue to deliver good performance for clients. Uh I, but I also think it comes back to your investment philosophy and the amount of risk you're you're willing to take in any given position. So, as we think about the individual businesses in the portfolio, we seek to invest in businesses that have relatively uh, limited amount of business risk, uh, balance sheet risk, financial risk, relatively acyclical in their nature. Uh, all cash generative, uh, substantial amounts of recurring revenue associated with them. So the individual businesses in the portfolio on their own are we, we believe are relatively low risk businesses put into a portfolio, um, we think the portfolio is has limited amounts of risk. So because our strategy is focused on investing in the most predictable businesses, we feel as though we can take on that amount of concentration and still deliver a good outcome. If on the other hand, our strategy was, was more focused on investing in the fastest growth businesses uh, or investing in turnarounds or investing in distressed equities, we I would think that we would own many more businesses to mitigate the individual risk uh, that is introduced by, the, by those strategies. But we feel comfortable because we, we focus at the individual business level in mitigating each one of the risks as we analyze those businesses that on on the whole, we're not taking on a great deal of risk. And in fact, we think the portfolio uh, has lower than market risk, which is one of the reasons we're very comfortable with.
0: And now the fun question that stems from that is, so my guess is most managers would not be comfortable having one position as large as Constellation Software is in your portfolio. So let's say you're in a meeting with an either an existing or potential client about the rationale for a 15% plus position in Constellation. How do, you, how do you respond to that? And how does that fit within the risk framework that you just highlighted?
1: I think that as you think about investing in businesses and in public equities, it's important to have a historical perspective on uh, the probability of delivering excess returns. So... It's just very difficult to deliver uh, outperformance. And if you look at uh, this landmark study that uh, uh, Bessemer did in 2017, he looked at 26,000 stocks. And what he found is that only 4% of all stocks generated the stock market's return in excess of one-month T-bills over the last 90 years. So even even I think more shocking to me is that 50% of all public companies saw their businesses generate negative returns during the entire existence of, of, of as, during their entire existence as public companies. So you're looking at a very, very, very narrow number of businesses that generate uh, all of the performance relative to uh, risk-free options. So that to us, compels us to focus the portfolio on those few businesses that we think fit into that 4% of all stocks over the last 90 years that have generated returns in excess of the risk-free rate. We just don't think you can deliver alpha if you own 150 businesses or 250 businesses or even maybe 60 businesses. So by design, because we're paid to deliver superior risk-adjusted returns, we feel as though we have to focus the portfolio when it comes to an individual uh holding we we cap uh all businesses that we own at at 20 percent of the portfolio and we have other concentration limits around the portfolio i think it's important to note that we're not adding to these large positions that we own these are this is the performance of the businesses. Uh, Generally, they performed incredibly well to become a a significant position in the portfolio. And uh, one of the reasons or one of the ways we structure the portfolio to manage risk is we're focused on making sure that our, our most durable businesses are represented at the top of the portfolio. We're not focused on making sure that The businesses we think that have, we're not focused on investing or positioning the portfolio with businesses at the top of the portfolio that are the fastest growth businesses, the businesses that we think have the most amount of upside uh, or the businesses that may even have the brightest futures. We think about this as a portfolio that uh, I'm heavily invested in, my family's heavily invested in. And so we want to own the most durable businesses at the top end of the portfolio. uh, And so... We feel as though the businesses that we own, even the the, the highway businesses, are very durable and substantially less risky than, than, than our uh, other alternatives. So I think the next lo- logical question gets to sell discipline. So
0: I personally like to create pre-mortems on a company or any company I'm looking at that highlights the certain events that would have to occur for an investment to do poorly for me to sell the stock. So valuation aside, what kind of things would have to have to happen for you to sell out of Constellation or or trim it down significantly? What are what kind of disconfirming information are you looking for when it comes to Constellation?
1: I think with all of the businesses that we own, uh, we track them very carefully. Uh, it's one of the uh, I think key tenants of the approach that that I learned at Fidelity, which is. Uh, continuing to monitor and stay close to, to your management team and stay close to your businesses. And as Peter Lynch like, like to remind us, you need to know what you own. Uh, I think that with, with all, all the businesses that we own, we're always monitoring the fundamentals uh, and the long-term opportunity for those fundamentals and long-term opportunity for, for our businesses. And I think that for the, the big compounders that are focused on acquiring businesses with their excess free cash flow. The biggest question is can they continue to deploy the enormous amounts of free cash flow, the gusher of free cash flow uh, that they generate, and increasing every single year to acquisitions that generate uh, accretive returns to the business and accretive returns for the shareholders? So it's a constant monitoring of where the capital allocation is going, where the cash flow is being invested. And is that cash flow being invested in projects or businesses that is likely to generate high returns uh, for investors over the long term? Fortunately for Constellation, the company has been able to continue to find uh, very attractive places to deploy excess free cash flow. And one of the, I think, incredible things about the business is that they continue as they've gotten much, much bigger to be able to scale up the acquisitions and do them successfully, generate very high returns, and to be able to decentralize the decision-making associated with capital allocation uh, farther and farther down the organization, which has allowed the the number and the volume and the size of the deals to increase as the years have have gone by. So we continue to be uh, amazed by the culture of the company. And hold management in just the, the highest, the highest of regard. Getting to the
0: wanting to be invested in the four percent of stocks that lead to all the outperformance, right? I think there's a chance, you know, there's a there's a counterfactual where you could have completely missed Constellation at at some point. And so, you know, getting to that, you you once showed me an interesting chart that there were, or it made an interesting comparison between the free cash flow growth of Constellation and the appreciation of the stock price. So I think a lot of people may have thought they had missed Constellation after the incredible returns the company generated between 2010-2016 when you guys first got into it. I'm interested in what you saw that was different and that what allowed you to invest, despite, you know, kind of whatever, missing a multi-bagger um, or, or like a very impressive stock for a number of years before.
1: It's uh it's it's really quite a lesson. The stock IPO at $17 a share. And uh, we made our first purchase uh, six years later at $600 a share. And uh, it's quite a lesson. And I think the lesson is that we always have to be focused on the future and much less focused on the past. In terms of uh, when we're valuing businesses, we have to look at where the business is going. I think the the uh, f- funny story about Constellation is uh, we attended the annual meeting, and Mark Leonard, the CEO, at the annual meeting at around six hundred dollars a share said he thought the stock was overvalued, and you don't hear that very often. We we attended the annual meeting the the following year, stock was roughly around that price, maybe at seven hundred at that time, and he expressed his belief that he thought the stock was overvalued at six or seven hundred dollars a share so if a ceo of a company tells you that their stock's overvalued uh that may be a reason to pay a lot of attention but i think what what gave us great confidence was yes the stock had gone up 25 times or so in, in a relatively short period of time but the business had performed unbelievably well uh free cash flow had gone up at a commensurate rate probably faster Revenue had gone up 30 plus percent for quite a long period of time. Uh, Returns on capital were above 50 percent. They were redeploying all their excess free cash flow. The business was scaling. And, uh, you know, when you have those types of opportunities. Oh, and I I should add, the stock was not very expensive. People were not giving them a lot of credit for capital allocation. They were just valuing the business uh, as it stood And you know it wasn't a lot more expensive at the time. It may been it may have been priced uh, as a median business in the S and P 500. That's how unremarkable the valuation was relative to the historical performance at the time. So we came away after doing a lot of research, uh, just very impressed by the company and focused on what they could do in the future and. Uh, weighing those factors relative to the current valuation on a free cash flow yield basis. And it, the stock was just not very demanding. So, so from our perspective, the the lesson is that if the fundamentals are driving the stock performance and the valuation is relatively reasonable and the future continues to be very bright, there's no reason to allow the past or the historical stock performance to keep you from owning a business that's going to continue to be great in the future
0: and as you're valuing anything in your portfolio constellation included how are you typically doing that are you doing 10 year dcfs are you you know are you uh estimating free cash flows over a shorter period of time are you using multiples are you kind of triangulating value what is the what is your preferred means of of assessing intrinsic value for any investment?
1: Good question. I just want to add on to uh, your last question with regard to the lessons from entering Constellation Software. I think the other way of summing up what should be learned from that experience is if a stock has doubled or even tripled, you have not missed it. That, that means it's time to get to work because good things are happening at this company. That doesn't mean this stock is overvalued and we should go put this thing aside and, and wait for it to be cut in half. The likelihood is it's not going to get cut in half because the performance of the company is going to drive the stock price forward. So if a stock has doubled or even tripled, that's a reason to pay attention, not a reason to walk away. With regard to valuing businesses, We spend a lot of time on, uh, we spend spend time building DCFs and building models without a doubt. But at the end of the day, investing is about opportunity costs. And we spend a lot of our time assessing the opportunity cost uh, of the businesses in the portfolio, the businesses on our watch list, and assessing uh, the free cash flow yields and how much current cash flow we are getting or what we are paying for current cash flow relative to our expectation uh, of the rate at which future free cash flow will compound in the future. Some might ask the question, well, shouldn't you adjust for the riskiness of the businesses? Shouldn't you adjust for uh, uh, the the macroeconomic sensitivity of these companies? The answer is generally yes. But from our perspective, when we, build a portfolio, and build a watch list, our focus is on putting together a group of businesses that all have similar amounts of relatively lower risk attributes associated with them, so we don't have to constantly make the decision which one of these businesses is riskier than the other, which one of these businesses should be assigned a different discount rate. We'd like to put together a group of businesses that have similar amounts of risk. No group has the same levels of risk. But in that way, we can more easily compare all the businesses on a free cash yield basis relative to their expected growth rates and make an informed decision based on the facts.
0: And you mentioned that opportunity cost framework. I'd love to understand that a little more. Are you comparing that against treasuries? Are you comparing it against like other things in the in in the universe like how does that how does how do you actually make decisions based on on opportunity cost
1: we stay fully invested generally fully invested sometimes we use cash as uh uh you know, after we've sold something we may hold some cash for some period of time but generally speaking the opportunity cost is against other opportunities equities that we can invest in. And so we are weighing the opportunity cost of adding a new idea to the portfolio relative to the existing ideas in the portfolio. And from our perspective, we keep a very high bar when it comes to adding something to the portfolio. Because from our perspective, whatever you're adding to the portfolio, must be much better than what you already have in the portfolio. It can't just be as good. It has to be much better because what you own in the portfolio, you have the most insight into because you've lived with it, you've diligenced it for four or five years. And so if you're adding something new, if you're adding a new animal to the portfolio, some of these stocks are animals. is the way we, we look at them sometimes uh, because they can make your life crazy. Uh, that animal really has to bring a lot more to whatever you're selling than whatever you're selling. So it's the opportunity cost of what do you have in the portfolio? Uh, what is it offering you in terms of uh, yield, current yield and, and future growth? And uh, what is the new idea offering you in terms of current yield and future growth? And then you're thinking about that, The talent of the management team, you're thinking about the subtle differences between these businesses, and usually the differences are relatively subtle because the bar is so high, and you're thinking about what can go wrong. Of course, you talked about post-mortems. How can this business be impaired? We really try to stay away from businesses that are going to go backwards because our vision is this snowball of cash flow that advances every year and gets bigger and bigger which then puts upward pressure on the equity value of the businesses and, and the upward pressure on the value of the overall portfolio so we want to mitigate the the blowups and mitigate the risk as much as possible but that's that's the way we're thinking about opportunity cost we're trading off the certainty or the confidence we have with the existing holdings in the portfolio with maybe something a little bit better, but hopefully it it is much better.
0: And I wanna switch gears a little bit. We've talked about management uh, in passing, and and especially when you're talking about the high high, um, opinion you have of the Constellation team, but um, you also did a breakdown of Roper, which you also own on the popular podcast, Business Breakdowns. And I would highly encourage anyone uh, listening to this to also listen to that episode. So I don't want to be redundant and cover the same content, but I'm curious about how your experience owning Roper and developing a relationship with its late CEO, Brian Jellison, has informed how you assess management teams.
1: It was uh, was, uh, very, very helpful to me. So just to give everybody uh, a little bit of background, Roper Technologies is now uh, uh, a holder, uh, manager, and acquirer of Predominantly vertical market software businesses. They own, uh, some medical businesses and, and a uh, water meter business as well. Uh, business has been around for over a hundred years, around for a long, long period of time. And, uh, you know, Ben, you're referring to Brian Jellison, who became CEO, uh, in the early 2000s. And, uh, just for context under his, uh, Under his management, the stock appreciated over those years about 25 times, beat the market, I think, by about 2x over his tenure. And he took a business that was a cyclical industrial business and turned it into one of the largest software companies in the United States that most people don't know about. I think that, you know, I learned a lot from spending time with Brian, uh, I think one of those key learnings that I learned was uh, in turnarounds and in most investments, particularly in, in companies, the CEO makes a huge, huge difference. If you have one of the smartest CEOs running your business, it's a huge advantage with Brian, Brian could envision where the world was going, and he could envision where the opportunities were far ahead of his competitors. Just to give you an example, in 2003 or 2004 and 2005, when he had taken over and began to operate uh, this cyclical industrial company, he was rapidly moving the business to recurring revenue businesses by acquiring them. Initially, uh, I would call them uh, kind of uh acyclical industrial businesses like the freight matching business and the water meter business that he bought, which are highly replacement driven companies or re- replacement driven business models. He could see that that was the way the world would go 20 years later. And then in, you know, before the Great Recession, he was already acquiring and uh remixing his business into recurring revenue software businesses five or 10 years ahead of the best private equity firms that were focused on software and now even the industrial businesses that are that that even the industrial companies today that are all trying to acquire software businesses he was 15 years ahead so when you can identify a ceo that can envision where the world is going and drive his business in that direction, you have somebody who can generate a lot of excess return. I think the other uh key learning from Brian uh was focusing on teams and CEOs that have a very, very clear direction in North Star. So so many times we meet with companies. And you come away from an hour or two-hour meeting with a company, and you're not really sure what they're focused on. They're doing this, and they're trying to achieve that, and and they're taking on this competitor. But at the end of the day, stocks are driven by earnings and free cash flow. And Brian had a laser-like focus on uh, generating high cash return on investment and generating substantial free cash flow. On a per share basis so it's it's more than that but those two key elements really stand out in my mind his sheer intelligence and his ability to see where the opportunities were and his unshakable focus on generating uh free cash flow and focusing and getting the entire organization to buy in and focus on that as a as a North Star or the North Star for the company.
0: Going a little further on the management context, in one of your recent letters, you discussed your affinity for CEOs who would prefer to be what you call servant leaders rather than people who want to build their own brand in a way that can cast a large shadow over the company. You know, why is that important to you? Why is that concept of a servant leader important as you're assessing management and looking for leaders to partner with?
1: You know, I was having uh, you know you referenced the most recent shareholder letter, uh, which came out you know a couple of weeks ago, and I talked in that letter about a meeting that I had with Bill Weldon, former chairman and CEO of Johnson and Johnson. Uh, you know, a man that lives and breathes the Johnson and Johnson credo, which is focused almost entirely on taking care of the customer. What we found is that most CEOs that are successful are are not focused on self-aggrandizement. They're not focused on uh, improving their existing positions. They're entirely focused on their customers, their employees, their shareholders, and their partners. And so we talked about one of the businesses that we own, which is Waste Connections uh, and and Ron Middlestead, who founded the company and runs the company and uh, has evangelized servant leadership uh, for his company. But we just think that companies that embody a focus on those uh, constituencies deliver better outcomes for everybody, including the employees including the customers, and including the shareholders. And they do that over long periods of time. And because we're long-term shareholders, we're focused on the long-term opportunity and the durability uh, and enduring nature of these companies. So having one or two good years for us, we're not looking for that. We're looking out for the next five, seven, 10 years. Do these businesses have a culture that embodies taking care of the customer, that embodies delivering for partners and employees. And as a result of that, the outcome for shareholders is typically very, very good. So we focus on that because we think it's a key differentiating factor as we assess the culture of companies.
0: And as I was looking through your presentation, one thing that struck out, uh, stood out to me, was that one of the three questions you ask about every company is, will management distribute the rewards of the business to the shareholders? And I was trying to figure out what that means. Is that buybacks? Is that dividends? Is that, you know, what What does that mean to you in terms of like what, what, what portion of the cash flows should come back to shareholders versus being reinvested in the business?
1: What it means to us is that what happens at the business level occurs on a per share basis so we want to make sure that the management team views us as partners even though they may not know us but they view shareholders as partners and the fact that the business delivers a good outcome from a revenue cash flow uh, or operating income perspective is it flows through to shareholders on a per share perspective. And so sometimes you could have a situation where management is acquiring businesses, is uh, engaging in certain transactions that might enhance uh, optically the income statement, but not create value for shareholders on a per-share basis, and oftentimes dilutes value to shareholders on a per-share basis. And so we see that often, and so we're always focused on making sure that as shareholders, our shareholders will are, are aligned with the management team on that key element. One of the ways we in, try to ensure that there's good alignment is we look at Uh, We look at management incentives and we want to make sure that management incentives are aligned with uh, what we think will drive value over over time. So just to give you just to give you an example, you can compare two businesses. uh, uh, The first business company, A, pays its top executives. uh, Their pay is tied to revenue growth, EBITDA and free cash flow. Per share growth and so that's a very balanced perspective and their long-term returns or their long-term compensation is tied to some of those other elements but also return on invested capital and so now you have this natural linkage of on the short-term side free cash flow per share uh, which is incredibly important we think the most important driver of stock prices and returns and so what you'll see is management focused on improving the returns, and delivering increasing free cash flow per share uh, to investors. And so that's a phenomenal alignment that we have with the management team. And over the long term, we think that alignment is going to create a good outcome uh, for for all shareholders and really all constituencies. You can look at a more common uh, management incentive program where you might have Uh, revenue growth, uh, earnings, or net income, and EBITDA as the short-term incentive drivers, and some mix of that in the long-term plan and some mix of TSR in the long-term plan as well. Well, you know, management, and we've seen this, can acquire a good deal of revenue, they can acquire a good deal of EBITDA, and they can dilute the shareholders and optically generate higher EBITDA, higher net income, higher revenue, but at the end of the day, because the returns on the deals are lower than shareholders would accept and dilutive to the value of the business, the outcome for shareholders on a per share basis is actually worse. And so we spend a lot of time making sure that our view of what will generate value is consistent with the way management both acts, believes, and is incentivized
0: and when i think about the universe that you're looking at recurring revenue businesses you know high free cash flow growth and high you know nice returns on invested capital i mean these are characteristics that have clearly been um in 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 favor among a lot of investors over recent years i mean maybe notwithstanding what happened in 2022 So I'm interested in how you've handled the dual challenges of your own stocks becoming more fully valued and there potentially being less to choose from when it comes to new ideas because of elevated expectations, elevated multiples, and then just everybody fawning over businesses that have more predictability and stability.
1: We've had to be creative, for sure. Uh, There's a lot of truth to the fact that Uh, Recurring revenue businesses have become more popular over the years, but there's still opportunities around misunderstood companies that have those durable elements associated with them, but for whatever reason, might not be growing at a rate that attracts investors at that period of time. And we might have a differentiated view about when that growth rate will improve and are willing to wait because in a very, very durable business that sells a critical service to the customer, that business is not going to go away. It might not grow, but it's not going to go away. And if you can get confidence that it will grow over the next year, two years, or three years, oftentimes the valuation is so attractive that It makes sense, assuming other things line up. And we've found a couple of those opportunities over the last couple of years. And fortunately, they've worked out. I think, secondly, what we found is that a business's performance is more important than how valuation is shifting with the vicissitudes of, of, of shareholders. So over short periods of time, uh, multiples that are applied to businesses can have a significant impact on the value of companies. But over long periods of time, the the performance of the company will generally overwhelm the change in multiple for those businesses. So if we have a business that is performing very well and cash flow continues to grow and cash flow is growing at a rate that's reflective of the underlying equity value and the business continues to to uh uh, improve its position even if the multiple has appreciated to some extent that doesn't cause us to to want to change course uh or or reduce our enthusiasm for the company we, like, we want to stay long-term investors, and we want to find reasons to, to not change, to stick with these long-term winners, because over the long term, you really get paid for staying with the great businesses and not for being creative in selling today and then trying to buy back later and then paying taxes. That's a very difficult thing to do.
0: And if I look at your holdings There are some stocks that are kind of conspicuously missing aside from a core holding in Microsoft. I don't see a lot of the large tech stocks that have been driving the returns of the S&P this year and in recent years. Can you talk about why these businesses, maybe even using Meta, given that you mentioned that company in a recent presentation, don't make the cut within this portfolio?
1: You know, it's, it's ironic because I spent so many years analyzing technology and semiconductor businesses that we don't own uh, some of the businesses that you mentioned. But at the end of the day, it go, it com- it all comes back to predictability uh, and as Buffett said in the 96 letter, the certainty with which you can predict the future economics of the franchise. And I just feel generally, it's difficult to predict the future, economics of some of these franchises and if we feel as though we can't predict where these businesses will be we stay away and i generally think most people can't predict the future for many of these uh, fast-changing technology businesses and i think that that's where a lot of people run into trouble so we try to take a very humble approach to investing in only what we think we know and what we can predict and we hope in that way we reduce the number of mistakes that we make. And I'm reminded of the great Mick Cronin UCLA's basketball coach and his strategy for winning. And one of the key tenets of his strategy is the following formula: lower turnovers than your competition, more rebounds than your competition equates to more possessions, which likely equates the more basket's made. So in investing, we focus a lot on limiting our turnovers by investing in this narrow subset of businesses that we think that we can predict. And in that way, we think that we increase the odds that the winners in the portfolio are able to show themselves and are not diluted by a lot of businesses that underperform. You brought up Facebook, which I think is, uh, is a good example I think the challenge with Facebook is is that it's a business that is difficult to predict. Uh, If you go back uh, in 2019 or so, business was growing at 35% a year or more. Uh, Margins were really high. Free cash flow was very strong. Uh, The business was beginning to lose market share, but it was very reasonably valued. It was, uh, I think, uh, cheaper than the market multiple. Uh, at certain points And a lot of people uh found the entry price of 275 or 300 dollars a share back then to be very very attractive but then a lot happened as can happen in these fast changing difficult to predict technology businesses uh the economy went against them uh a competitor rose up in tiktok uh the ceo decided uh you know, I think without a lot of warning that he needed to spend tens of billions of dollars to enter a new and a somewhat related but new industry and free cash flow estimates for the company in 2023, back a couple of years ago, went from $60 billion to 10. And of course, the stock went from 300 to $100 a share. It's since come back a lot as management has changed strategy. But... God, is it difficult to be in a business where all of those different elements can change uh, and go against you? I think it's extraordinarily difficult. And even more so, it's extraordinarily difficult to hold on uh, when a stock goes from $300 to $100 a share. And it's just not clear how they're going to come back and whether management is going to uh, make the changes necessary uh, to improve the value of the company. I think, thank God for Facebook invest- investors, some changes have been made and strategies have been altered, but it's a very, very difficult situation that the investor and the investment manager is put in to discern the future of that business. And so we try our best to be in situations where they're just, they may be boring, but at least they're predictably boring. So you know, I'd also like to talk about you know, the
0: business of investment management and, and, and portfolio management. And something that's a little different about you compared to some of our other guests is that you run a mutual fund as opposed to SMAs or hedge fund. Maybe talk a little bit about the differences in how you run a mutual fund versus an F- SMA and the different considerations as you're, as you're constructing a portfolio for, for a mutual fund structure.
1: I've always wanted to help everyday people. And I gain a lot of satisfaction from helping everyday people through through our work uh, on the mutual fund. And so I came from a heritage at Fidelity that was focused on helping everyday people. And it gives me a huge sense of purpose and uh, a huge amount of satisfaction that our work directly benefits not these nameless, name, nameless and faceless financial institutions, but it really helps family, friends, people that we don't know, uh, but people that really derive significant benefit uh, from our work. And so that's one of the reasons I've always focused on uh the individual investor focused on uh, providing them opportunities to invest with us uh, that are not exclusive to uh, financial institutions. Uh, And so, you know, hopefully we continue to deliver for those people because uh, I think they matter a great deal and it's more meaningful to them than it is uh, to other constituencies. With regard to hedge funds, I think that, generally speaking, it's difficult for it's difficult for high fee high fee structure hedge funds to outperform the broad market. And our goal is to deliver more value than we extract by by a large margin. And so, fortunately, uh, since we started in two thousand and sixteen, we've outperformed the the broad market. Uh, by about three and a half percentage points a year, uh, on a relatively consistent basis, and our fee is uh, you know, a fraction of what we've been able to deliver to the to the end clients, and uh, I feel good about the fact that we're delivering more value, a, a lot more value than we're extracting, and I think that that's the that's if there's one secret that I've learned from everything I've read about business is deliver more than what you receive and you'll have a a business that can grow and 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 endure for long periods of time and that's really what we're focused on uh on creating here
0: so you've had any number of people who have served as mentors and you've had you know stocks that have served as mentors for you um and when you when you were at fidelity you had the opportunity to learn from some legendary investors one of which was will danoff What did you learn from Will that influences the way that you invest today?
1: Will is very focused on investing in best of breed companies. He's not particularly focused on uh, value stocks, turnarounds, uh, those types of situations. And I think that Will's quality lens and focus on best of breed businesses is something that's always stayed with me. Not to lower your standards. Don't lower your standards to go into a situation where well the multiples two points uh, lower than uh, the industry average or the best business. Don't lower your standards. Don't invest with the the third player in a four player market. We've seen that not work out many times, and most recently it has not worked out in, in, in uh, some traditional industries. So I think that best of breed businesses is one of his uh, strongest lessons and uh, one of the strongest pillars to his process. Second, he liked to say, I bet with billionaires. And to him, that meant Investing with the smartest, best managers he could find. And those that had done it once, twice, or three times, even better. And so he's always focused on doubling down on great people. And that lesson has definitely stayed with me. We focus on investing with and partnering with the best CEOs we can find, whether it's Mark Leonard who I think is the, is the greatest capital allocator of the last 20 years, or Hock Tan, who used to be a manager at Pepsi uh, and now runs one of the largest semiconductor businesses in America with Broadcom, an unbelievable leader. There's no replicating what those people can do for businesses. And one of the great lessons from Will is to stay with those leaders to have confidence in those leaders and if the opportunities present themselves to add to positions uh when those businesses uh are out of favor those are some really good lessons and i think you know they clearly
0: have seeped into your process given the the the, the, you know the discussion we've had so we're going to close with a question that we're asking all of our guests um which is you know the market's Markets have been volatile markets up markets down. There's, you know, I don't think anyone's looking at the world and saying, you know, us stocks are dirt cheap and and hated. So I'm interested in what you think is the most underappreciated, um, aspect of the investment opportunity that you see in front of you.
1: I think that the most underappreciated, uh, aspect is optimism, uh, What people don't talk about is over the last several months, we've come off a a period of time of euphoric optimism. You had IPOs being launched. You had stocks that had no earnings and no prospects going up and becoming $50 billion market cap companies. You had a period of time that felt a lot like uh, when I began investing in 97 and 98 where the internet bubble just drove the entire stock market. And we've gone through a period of decline. And we've gone through a period where many, many, many businesses have gone down 80 or 90%. And we've gone through a period where there haven't been very many new issues. And so the signs of enthusiasm in the stock market, from our perspective, are are not excessive at all. And so the opportunities in the stock market are perhaps not quite as easy to identify as they were five or seven years ago, but there still are numerous opportunities. This will still be a great economy in the United States, and this will still be a great opportunity to invest uh, in great businesses run by, by great leaders. So there's no reason to not be optimistic. I think there's a lot of reason to be optimistic. Uh, and there's a lot of opportunity, and we could not be more excited about the opportunity. I would say the other key thing to think about, is that, at least that we think about, is that there are so many investing or misconceptions around investing. One of those misconceptions that we've touched on several times is that you can uh, buy any business that you think that you know. You know, there was a popular uh, popular books written many years ago uh, that, uh, that espoused the philosophy of buy what you know. Well, I, I don't agree with that. I, I think that generally it's difficult to know most businesses. Most management teams can't predict uh, the direction of their stock prices, oftentimes the direction of their businesses. And so from our perspective, it isn't buy what you know. It's buy what you can predict. It's buy what you can value. And so- think that is one of the key lessons that investors should take is you can't have an opinion on every single business and and follow through with an investment, but you can you probably can have an opinion on a couple of businesses, and I think that's where investors should be focused. I think the the second driving uh, force that at least drives us is that free cash flow is what drives stock prices. It isn't earnings, it isn't revenue, it isn't EBITDA. Free cash flow is the only metric that physically moves stock prices forward. And so as we think about valuing businesses, it all comes back to to free cash flow and our expectation uh, for free, free cash flow growth in the future. And I think the last lesson is, and we've talked about this earlier in our discussion, if a stock has doubled or even tripled You haven't missed it. It's time to, if that's occurred, it's time to do work and to dig in because there's probably a great opportunity here.
0: Uh, I I like those because you're offering, you know, almost like a contrarian way to invest within good businesses, which almost sounds like impossible, but I get it. You have to have a differentiated perspective. Joseph, this has been great. Thank you for taking the time. We're going to be watching uh, the success of your fund uh, very carefully over the years.
1: Thanks for being on Compounders. My pleasure. Good to see you. Thank you.
0: For full disclosure, I do not own any of the securities discussed in this podcast. Joseph owns Roper, but not Meta.